are listening to the podcast ministry of Portadown Independent Methodist Church. We welcome you and thank you for joining us. We trust that you are blessed by the ministry of God's Word today. Second Samuel chapter 11 and verse 6 is where our reading is from. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said unto Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. And Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go in to mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will get thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the foremost of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass, when Joab observed the city, that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also." Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, when thou hast made an end of telling the matters of the war unto the king, and if so be that the king's wrath arise and he say unto thee, wherefore approached ye so nigh unto the city when ye did fight? Knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech the son of Jerubbasheth, did not a woman cast a piece of a millstone upon him from the wall, and he died in Thebes? Why went ye nigh the wall? Then say thou, thy servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us into the field. And we were upon them even unto the entering of the gate. And the shooters shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead. 
and thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. Many years ago, there was a Scottish preacher by the name of James uh, Stalker. He was over in America doing some uh, teaching and some preaching, and in one of the services, D.L. Moody was present. And after a particular sermon, D.L. Moody insisted that this sermon be published, that it be put into print, that others might be able to read it. The particular sermon was entitled, The Four Men, or The Four People. The first one was, The Man or the Person the World Sees. So people see us who don't really know us, and they form impressions of us based upon little things that they see. We do this about others that we don't know very well also. And so somebody might say, she seems a very friendly person, or he seems very quiet. And that's about the sum of what they know. But the world has an impression of you, the people who don't really know you, but they have some knowledge. The second person then was the person that our friends see in this man's sermon. The world might think somebody to be quiet, but the friends and the family can say, oh, there is another side to that person. And, and because we are friends and we are family, we've seen the other side. Our friends and our family have a much better picture of us than, than those he's speaking of in the world. Our, our friends and our families could write a biography of our lives, not just a little one-sentence snippet. The person our friends see. The third person then was the person that we ourselves see. You know yourself better than anyone else here. You know yourself far better than the world and far better than your friends and far better than your family. You know your conscience. You know your motivations. You know your thoughts, and as he points out in this sermon, sometimes even people will, will compliment you for something that you've done, and you think, I didn't even mean that. Uh, they thought my motives were good. My motives weren't bad, but they weren't good in the way that they thought. So there's the person that we ourselves know ourselves to be. And then the fourth person in this sermon is the person that God sees. And Stalker concludes with this line, they are the same person, but only the last one is the real one. The person that God sees you and me to be this morning, that is who we are. The person that God sees you and me to be, that's who we are this morning. And the question that then arises is, 
not what do the world see or what do our friends and family see, not even strictly speaking, what do we ourselves see ourselves to be, but what does God see you to be this morning? And that is, I think, a fitting introduction to this text where David is frantically concerned about what the world thinks of David, about what friends and family think of David, but he is entirely careless at this moment about what God thinks of David, and that's the only one that ultimately matters. Now, if we could do a little timeline of Samuel, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 here, we would have the mark on the timeline where David initially sinned involving Bathsheba. That's where we were last Sunday morning. And David has dug himself into a spiritual hole whenever he sinned against God. He is, and he'll even describe moments like this as being in a horrible pit. And that's where we left David last Sunday. He has dug a hole. His fingerprints are all over the speed, we might say, and there is no one else to blame. David dug a hole. David is in the hole, and the hole is a horrible place to be. Now, when we ask, is there a way out of that horrible pit that David is in? The answer is yes, but to get out, David must be lifted. And the only one who can lift him out is God himself. And for that to happen, David must acknowledge his sin to God. There is no other way out of the horrible pit other than acknowledging and confessing and repenting of that sin. There is no plan B to get out of the horrible pit that David is in. So that's a big mark on this timeline, David's initial sin. Now, if we move ahead to chapter 12, David does get to a point where he acknowledges his sin to God. And he experiences the mercy of God who lifts him out of that horrible pit and sets his feet upon a rock and puts a song in David's unworthy heart. So that is a, is a profound moment in the timeline of David. He dug a hole, his fingerprints all over the spade. He is in the hole, and by the mercy of God, whenever David acknowledges his sin, God lifts him out of the pit and sets his feet on a rock, and God puts a song of praise into David's unworthy heart. So there are two moments that are, that, are, that are shocking in their own right, we might say. Where we are this morning in this timeline, however, is the gap in between those moments. That's where we are. David is in this horrible pit in this particular section that we are this morning. And it raises the question before we even move on. Are you this morning in a horrible pit? Is your conscience defiled 
by what you have done and you are not bringing it in acknowledgement and confession and repentance to God. The world doesn't know about it. Your friends might not know about it. Your family might not know about it. You know about it. And most importantly, God knows. And if you are in that horrible pit, I've been in that horrible pit. If you are in that horrible pit, then this message this morning is is like a trumpet blast to get your attention if that's where you are. Now, in verse 5 that we read last Sunday, a message is brought to King David, and it causes panic in David's heart. His sin involving Bathsheba has had consequences, and there is a risk now that this is going to go public. In fact, there are some who know of this and there is kind of a trail of breadcrumbs that leads back to the palace and implicates the king. And so it is the fear here of David's sin going public that causes David to panic and what he experiences here is a frantic urge to cover up his sin. It's a frantic, blind panic urge to cover up his sin that the world might not know about it, that his friends might not know about it, that his family might not know about it. But all the while, he knows and God knows. Now, if you are in a horrible pit, you will identify with David's experience here, this urge that this doesn't get out. And the lengths that David goes to here prove that he knows that he sinned in a terrible way. David's actions here to cover up his sin testify to how acutely aware he is that he has done something very wrong. Why would you cover it up if you didn't know that it was wrong? And so David here is ashamed. He doesn't want what he did and what he is to be known. He is afraid of it becoming known. And in his panic here, David's concern at this moment is, I don't want the world to know what I did. I don't want my friends to know. I know, he's not overly concerned at this moment, that God knows, but this is where David is at. David is covering his sin. And the futility of this is seen in this passage. Even if you manage to cover up your sin from the world and from your friends, you still know and God still knows. Hebrews 4.13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened onto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. David must come before God at some point to deal with this sin that he has committed. God knows about it, and all of his efforts to conceal it from the world or from his friends do not conceal it from the eyes of God. 
And yet David, if he would come clean at this very early stage here, if David would come clean and if he would acknowledge his sin to God and repent of it, David would be forgiven. And all of the tragedies that happen in the remainder of his time in the pit could have been averted. The scriptures say, Proverbs 28, 13, he that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. So here is David in this horrible pit, and, and, and if he had acknowledged his sin at the beginning to God, if he had forsaken and repented, he could have been lifted out of the horrible pit and set on the rock and a new song put within his heart. But the fact that David delays on this coming clean before God, this, this opening his heart and, and confessing it to God, the fact that he delays on that sets off a, a cascade here of tragic events that could have been averted. David's refusal then to acknowledge his sin early, to confess his sin quickly to God, leaves him in this horrible pit where he is in this gap that goes on for so long between these major moments. What does David find in this pit? Well, he finds the same thing that you're finding, even this morning, if that's where you are. It is a pit that is infested with many awful temptations. If that's where you are in a horrible pit, it is a pit infested with many terrible temptations. And David is in this pit hiding from God and he therefore is not coming to the one who has the grace needed to fight off these temptations. What an utterly wretched place then to be. David's heart is crawling, we might say, with temptations in this pit and yet he does not come to God for grace to resist them. And does not this, even at the beginning of this message, press upon you the urgency of confessing your sin early? The longer you remain in the horrible pit, infested with these temptations, and without the needed grace to resist them, then that time in the pit can only get worse and the hole can only get deeper. David finds himself with this classic temptation to deceive. In verse 6, it tells us that he summoned uh, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to come home from the battlefield. Why? Well, David will send Uriah home for a few days and thus provide a, 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 an alternative explanation to the news of verse 5. And to pull this move off, David has to deceive Uriah. And so it says there in verse 7, David demanded of Uriah when Uriah got home how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. It says he demanded answers. It paints this picture in my mind of, a, of an agitated David interrogating Uriah like, like he's dying of concern about the war. David is interrogating Uriah, how is the war effort? Like, I can hardly sleep, Uriah. How, how are the people doing on the front lines? 
he asks about it, it, the shalom of Joab, the shalom of the people, the shalom of the war, this word for peace or this word for prospering and flourishing, like David cares about the prosperity and the flourishing of things, what a sham David is committing here. And if you're in the pit, do you not identify with David here? This, this, if you're going to cover up what is done, then you're going to have to deceive. And that's what David does here. He's interrogating. I'm so concerned about the war effort, Uriah. I brought you home. How in the world is it doing? And all the while in David's heart, it doesn't even give us Uriah's answer. David isn't really even listening. And he says, David said, go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And after he had left, David sent him with a mess of me from the king. Now watch this for a moment on a split screen again. On the outside, the world and the friends of David are saying, David is so kind. David is so concerned about the war effort. And, And David even exaggerates almost his concern here, sending off this gift. And as Uriah left and this gift came to him, he must have been thinking, what an honor to serve this very honorable king. The man his friends see is not the real David, though. For what we see on the outside is kindness. On the inside, David has taken a penknife to the blueprint of God's for marriage and for intimacy, as we saw last week. And now he tears to ribbons God's blueprint for how we speak to each other, how we communicate. In his very nature, God hates deception. He is a God of truth. To to even imagine the father deceiving the son is so repulsive to us, so unthinkable, we can't even start to think of it. God is truth. He is always holy and always honest. He cannot lie, Titus 1 verse 2. He hates a lying tongue, Proverbs 6, 16. And so what we see David here is he is deceiving Uriah and painting this picture. I'm a very kind and a noble king, but on the inside, he is again violating the commands of God. What do we find then? If you are in this pit, the longer you remain, the more you will be tempted to deceive. And when you deceive, you violate, you tear to shreds God's blueprint for how we should be, and that is honest. And in attempting to cover up our sins, we merely dig the hole that we are in even deeper. David is more guilty after his attempted cover-up than he was at the beginning. So I ask you this morning, if you are in the horrible pit, do you not say, I I understand that temptation? Well, the the temptation to deceive. if, If I'm going to cover it up, I'm going to have to deceive. And in so doing, you sin against God who is truth and who hates lying and all falsehood. Now, Uriah here is a Hittite. It was a tribe in Canaan. Seems to be a convert to Judaism. And we learn that rather than go home to his wife, he sleeps outside the palace with David's, where David's servants have their quarters. Verse 9 tells us here that 
Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. And when David inquires why, listen to Uriah's answer here in verse 11. And Uriah said unto David, the ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink? Uriah says to David, I'm concerned about the ark, concerned about the glory of God. I have a solidarity with my fellow soldiers who are at war. David didn't have this. Uriah is living sacrificially, not going home whenever he had the opportunity. When David had stolen Uriah's wife, Uriah has resolved, as thou livest and as thy soul livest, David, I will not do this thing. David has no resolve. And here is a Hittite convert to Judaism who has more integrity than the king. And surely in this moment, David must feel physically unwell. Here he is deceiving, here he is with all of his sin, and here is Uriah in such a large place with God, and such such a, a reminder to David, even what it used to be like for him in his past, when he was so concerned about the ark, when he danced before the ark, when he sacrificed and cared for his people. We might ask, is this not an opportunity For David to fall on his face before God and say, God, I remember what I used to be and I remember where I used to, what I used to be like. God, I beg you for mercy, but no, David delays. Is not this even an opportunity for David? See, here is Uriah, a good man, a godly man. What if I fall at Uriah's feet and say, Uriah, I have something terrible to confess. But David delays in his coming clean, and in the delay there is danger, for his heart again begins to crawl with yet more temptations. In verse 13 it says, David called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he, David, made Uriah drunk. Why? David wants to reduce Uriah's clear-headed desires for the glory of God. David wants to reduce Uriah's ability to think carefully. He wants to reduce Uriah's resolve to do what he believes to be right. Uriah was made in the image of God to be a rational and a thoughtful person. He is a glowing example of what it means to be made in the image of God. And David's attempt then to impair Uriah's God-given mind is a grievous sin, not only against Uriah, but against God himself. David is tampering here with the very image of God in Uriah. There is no other way to describe this. This is an assault on God himself. It's why in Habakkuk 2.15, we said, we read, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor strong drink. 
The scripture places a woe on what David did here. God made Uriah to think clearly, and in his clear thinking, he desires for the glory of God. And David comes along to impair that thinking. And again here, Uriah still doesn't go home. In other words, listen to this, a drunken Uriah has more concern for the glory of God than a sober David. David's sin here, David's time spent in this pit, reduces even his ability to think clearly about things. It has ruined his ability, and Uriah, a drunk Uriah, has more concern for the glory of God than a sober David. Ought not this then to frighten you if you are in the pit this morning that while you are there, you cannot even think right so long as and until you repent and confess and come clean before God? And if you are in the pit, is this chapter not like a bucket of cold water poured over your head to awaken you and to make you sober to what your condition is? And finally, it is death. Look at verse 14. Came to pass in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest bottle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. David, not only tampering with the image of God in Uriah, will destroy Uriah's life. When you look around this morning at others sitting here, they are people made by God in his own image. Doesn't matter who they are, go wherever you want, go into a prison, they are made in the image of God. Go into an insane asylum, they are made in the image of God. All men made in the image of God. Their life has come from God. They have the fingerprints of God on them. They bear his image in them. And whenever we inflict a cruel wound on an innocent person like David does here, David is not only attacking Uriah, he is attacking God who had placed his image in Uriah. He takes an innocent man's life to cover his own sin and the innocent blood cries from the ground to heaven that David is guilty of an other grievous and wicked sin. The end of verse 17, Uriah is dead also. Indeed, in the extensive report that Joab gives, verses 18 to 24, it is quite clear that not only did Uriah die, Joab had to pull off this maneuver where more than Uriah, other soldiers died so that David's command here could be kept. And yet when this news is brought to David, he says, oh, send a message back to Joab that this shouldn't displease him. He dismisses it with a wave of the hand. How deep then is this horrible pit that David is in now? He is guilty of deception. He is guilty of getting a man drunk. He is guilty of the death of many people. And it all could have been averted if he had confessed and come clean before this all started. Now surely God includes this chapter 
here this morning for you if you are in such a pit, and it is to convince you of this, your efforts to hide sin are futile. God knows your sin. And if he chooses, he can publish it to the world. Here, David's desperate efforts to cover his sin from the eyes of the world, and, and God chooses to publish it in a book that is read all over the world. Thousands of years later, here we are studying. It is futile for you to try and cover your sin from God. But if David could speak to us this morning, what would his message be? And I think his message would be this. The very, very, very instant that you uncover, you acknowledge your sin to God, you confess your sin to God, you repent of it, he will rescue you from the horrible pits. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, established my goings, put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. If David could speak this morning, he would warn us about the horribleness of the pit, but surely he would convince us the very instant you come clean with God, he lifts you out of that horrible pit. Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, whose sin has been atoned for and erased by the blood of the Lord Jesus, whose record of sin has been expunged even from God's records. Think of how astonishing this is. David murdered men trying to cover his own sin. And it gained him nothing. It made things worse. But there is something more awful yet. David was responsible for the death of another truly innocent man. He was God incarnate. Whom David had sinned violently against in all of these sins. David's sins in this chapter deserved hell. Not just an innocent man, Uriah, but the innocent son of God, David was responsible for his death. This time, this man wasn't led to death in naivety as Uriah was, but he went to death willingly to cover, to atone for David's sin with his blood. He, the innocent Lord Jesus, was treated like he was David, a duplicitous, adulterous, murderous, covetous sinner. The Lord Jesus, who was innocent, was treated as though he were a duplicitous, adulterous, murderous sinner like David. As we stare aghast this morning as the Lord Jesus hangs bruised and bloodied and battered on the cross, must we not conclude that he is good and that his love knows no bounds? 
Here is David and the blood of one innocent man cries from the blood. David is guilty. David is guilty. And yet whenever David comes and he confesses and he uncovers his sin to God and his sins are atoned for, washed away by the blood of the Lord Jesus, that blood cries for David that David is forgiven. So as we study the pages of 2 Samuel, we find a record of David's sin as a matter of historical fact. But if you searched the records of heaven, you would find no record against David held against him there. It was erased by the blood of God incarnate who took the judgment for David's sin in full. Isn't that then astonishing to you this morning? Are you in a horrible pit? David would say, listen, listen, the very moment you uncover your sin to God, he will lift you out of the horrible pit and he will put your feet on a rock and he will establish your goings and put a song within your mouth. He will cover your sins with the blood of the Lord Jesus that the record itself is expunged from heaven. So David can shout in Psalm 103 these words, that God forgiveth all thine iniquities. I don't care why you are in the pit. I do care, but it doesn't matter in this regard that if you would uncover them to God, if you would confess them to God, if you would tear all of the coverings off and say, God, I did it and I shouldn't have and I'm guilty and I confess it to you, he would forgive you in a millisecond before you'd even finished asking, he would be forgiving. David says, he forgiveth all thine iniquities. And we might say, David, did you mean all? And David would say, I meant all. Go read 2 Samuel 11 and you'll see what I mean by all. And he will conclude, as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Are you then this morning in this horrible pit? The world doesn't know. Your friends don't know. Your family doesn't know. But you know, and God knows. The longer you stay, the deeper it will get. But as soon as you confess it to God, he lift you out with forgiveness and he will put a song back in your heart of praise to him. Why then would you wait? Why then would you wait? Once again, thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, visit our website, portadownimc.org, or find us on Facebook at Portadown IMC. God bless.